Hello everyone, welcome to Radically Loved Radio. I wanted to create a place where people can go to to get inspired, get motivated, or find some clarity and get tools to create a radically loved life. I will do my best to provide information on a variety of subjects, including yoga, holistic health, life coaching, spirituality, meditation, and overall mindful living. Each episode will bring you some of the world's best spiritual leaders, entrepreneurs, yoga teachers, coaches, along with some of my closest friends, and we will talk about their life experiences and journeys to create something more out of their lives and how they continue to grow to make that happen. Thanks for listening. Rolf Gates, author of the acclaimed book on yogic philosophy, Meditations from the Mat, Daily Reflections on the Path of Yoga, is one of the leading voices of modern yoga. He is also the co-founder of Yoga Recovery Conference, Esalen Institute, and has brought yoga and functional stretching to the U.S. Department of Defense's Tri-Country Summit on Sustainability. He is such a great and incredible wise teacher. He works with the U.S. military on sustainable care for troops and their families. He also works weekly one-on-one with clients uh, with his yoga life coaching program. This man is a true yogi in its deepest sense. He talked to me all about his path to yoga, about yoga and recovery, his path, and everything that he's doing now. I cannot wait for you to listen and tell me what you thought. I will go ahead and start off by saying that uh, I got meditations on the mat, I think it was in 2003 or four. I think it was just after I turned 21. Um, and for, for the people that don't know, it's an incredible book with 365 short essays meant to build on one another. Uh, and you can read one a day or a couple of pages a day for when you need guidance and inspiration. Um, Personally, for me, I would use the book as kind of a guide during this time in my life when I was discovering meditation, and I would just kind of open the book, and wherever it would uh, open up, like that would be my lesson for the day or, or something that I would use to kind of fuel whatever was happening that day or that week. So I want to say thank you very much for creating such an incredible piece of art and uh, guide for us students um, for, for doing that. And I'm really excited to have you on the show to talk about that. So one of the, one of the big things that's happening right now um, is you've been teaching for about 20, 20 years or so, I think. And you've spoken at length about your road to, uh, through this practice, your own personal journey. And also you, you've spoken at length to your road to recovery. And I just wanted to let the listeners kind of get a little background on you and what your story was and how yoga and meditation was able to assist you in your journey and particularly your, your journey, your introduction to yoga or how yoga and meditation served a, a role in, in changing your life? Uh, sure. Um, I'll just talk, I mean, it's a, it's a huge topic, so I'll just kind of talk about it from a practice standpoint. Okay. Um, I, got, I got sober um, in, uh, at 26 years old, so 1990. And um, I was in the Army, 
and you know, I kind of like the first, you know, thing that worked for me was I went to some meetings and I read the literature and I followed the instructions and I got sober. Um, and then I went to rehab for six weeks. The army, uh, you know, sent me to rehab and I had, you know, kind of a perfect, like essentially, you know, I can't speak for how they're doing it today, but at the time, you know, the treatment was for the addict to develop essentially a program for living, you know, mm -hmm. where you kind of um, set up a set of, you know, healthy practices and, uh, you know, develop a healthy respect for, you know, kind of unskillful practices. And it, you were kind of equipped to go out and live a sober life. And a big part of that was, um, you know, going to meetings every day for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to false step meetings every day for a long time and, and so this idea of like kind of living on purpose was introduced to me um, through kind of the addictions treatment people I was, you know, blessed to have in my life 24 hours a day for six weeks. And I left rehab being like, okay, I'm going to like do this. I'm going to be sober and I'm going to live one day at a time and I'm going to develop a spiritual life. And I really just kind of abandoned kind of ordinary kind of aspirations and kind of focused on spiritual aspirations, you know, like I want, someone asked me at like two years sober, like what, you know, what do you want in your life? I'm like, well, 20 years from now, I want to be 23 years sober, you know, mm. that I was someone who had, you know, at that, you know, and I'd just been, I'd, I'd been like the opposite end of the pool. I was a military officer. I was a airborne ranger, kind of special forces trained dude. And I'd been very, very goal oriented. I'd been an athlete. And I, I literally did like a 180 in towards spirituality in rehab. Um, and so, you know, I was someone who, you know, I had like, I waited tables and delivered packages and I, you know, kept a roof over my head. But I, in my, the rest of my 20s was devoted to, um, you know, learning to live sober. And it was mm -hmm. just a huge opening in terms of, um, you know, smelling you know, spring for the first time in 10 years and mm -hmm. tasting food like, and, you know, feeling feelings and having gratitude and having fear and having anxiety and having, you know, boredom. You know, I was, I was having like emotion and I was having sensation. Um, and, you know, um, that was the focus of my life. And surely there, I mean, one of the, the 11th step and the 12th step is in, involves, you know, developing a meditation practice. Mm -hmm. And so at like 18 months sober, I bought myself uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind for Christmas and started meditating. And that had an immediate effect. Like I would, I would basically read, you know, kind of a chapter, the, the little teeny writings in the book and, mm -hmm. you know, sit down for 20 minutes and count breaths. And it was like immediate. And I became extremely, um, um, uh, you know, I should say that like, although I had embraced spirituality through sobriety, uh, my my experience was that of, you know, kind of, I was, I had, you know, my addiction almost certainly was self-medicated PTSD, you know. Oh. I had, like, a remarkable amount of trauma. And so, in sobriety, I was just a wreck, you know. I, I'm kind of an optimistic guy. I'm kind of fun-loving, but my, you know, I just was, like, plagued with kind of, you know, the symptoms of, of trauma. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so when I say at 18 months sober, I started meditating and had an immediate effect, had an immediate effect on my ability to self-soothe, mm -hmm. to feel calm and to feel safe. 
you know? Yeah. Like, essentially, you know, before meditation, I could only feel safe, like, when I was jogging or when I was moving, you know, when I was being productive. If I sat still, I felt anxious. Mm-hmm. Meditation was a way to kind of sit still and let go and and start to, like, enjoy kind of the still half of life. I was always, like, fine in motion. I was, like, a wrestler, a football player, you know. I loved weighing tables for that for that reason. It's like you're constantly moving. Um, but I didn't know how to sit still, and meditation was, like, a sit-still training. And I was like, wow, this is, that's appropriate. Um, and so th- it was an invitation to the kind of the still and the quiet and the safe. Think about, like, being in the forest and, like, standing still in the forest, you know, like to me, meditation was this invitation to have that in your life. Mm-hmm. And so if you combine, you know, my passion for moving with, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the still forest thing, when someone said do a yoga pose, I was like, that sounds, <laughs> you know, I think still forest movement. <laughs> and so I was, I was extremely open to it. And, it, it was complete consistent with where my life was. It wasn't like I was like, people have asked me like, hey, you were in the army and then you did yoga. And so I started doing yoga at Kripalu, which is this, in the forest in New England. Um, and it was immediate. I loved it immediately, you know. And so meditation and yoga kind of came along early in my sobriety to help me. I think this is, you know, I won the yoga and recovery conference with Tommy and Nikki and mm-hmm. um I, I think the role of yoga and meditation, strictly in the addiction treatment world, is like once you put the drink down, most people have to deal with the trauma, you know. Yeah. And yoga and meditation is, um, you know, to me, like, you know, I can't think of a better method for someone with a trauma history and an addiction in particular, and, you know, a trauma history, addiction history, like a history of a difficult, um, you know, the inability to kind of live life on life's terms emotionally yeah. to deal with their inner life. These are the tools that teach you to become, like the phrase I use all the time now in class is, you know, becoming still and letting go, mm-hmm. you know. Just learn to become still and to let go. And, like, what a beautiful, you know, option mm-hmm. for someone who's, you know, you know, what is trauma when we're talking about a 26-year-old? It's like, well... You've been in, like, countless terrifying situations, you know, and, like, you've been, your cage has been rattled at a level that you can't manage. Yeah. And to give that person, um, and that's what alcohol does. I mean, think about alcohol for someone traumatized. It's like, it's like, a, it's like a warm blanket, you know. It's also like a recipe for disaster. Mm-hmm. But, but, like, it's this warm blanket to someone who's really anxious, you know. Yeah. And it's a it's an invitation to re- relaxation, and imagine being able to do that without the use of drugs and alcohol, and to be able to just feel safe and to feel like you belong in life. Like there's that phrase, uh, you know, like a wave that's forgotten the ocean. And yeah. Like for for me, yoga meditation was a way to remember the ocean. Mm. God, that's beautiful. I grew up going to those meetings. Uh, coming from a family of alcoholics and drug addicts and people that have overdosed and trauma and, and all of it, you know, so I, I know the 12 steps 
really, really well. <laughs> and, and Al-Anon, you know, I grew up going to, to Al-Anon and I know how beneficial those, those 12 steps and, and just having a pathway to recovery is. Uh, and saying that, I know that you've done extensive work with people with PTSD, veterans, and working in prisons. And um, how how do you how do you give the the teachings to somebody that has gone through that trauma or does have that PTSD or has a hard time feeling safe? Or as you said when you started, you were really anxious. And for somebody that say is is just coming out of the midst of their addiction there's so much, everything is amplified. There's, there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of triggering. How do you speak to, to a student or, or a person in, in that state to get them to, to agree to try meditation or to convince them that that feeling of comfort that they seek in substances exists? Well, you know, I, I don't have, um, you know, I don't really prophetize. Mm-hmm. You know? I work with people who come through my door, you know, and that's always been true in yoga. Like when I was, I worked in addictions treatment, you know, for a bunch of years, and I was I worked in, I was trained in social work, and mm-hmm. you know, I was working with populations that were there on the arrest, and so there's a lot of there's a lot more negotiating that takes place in, like, a traditional treatment method, especially I was working with adolescents. These were kids. Yeah. Like, they're, like, over, they're like you know, kind of conscious stance was like, look, I don't want to be here. You mm-hmm. know? At a subconscious level, they really did, but at a conscious level, they're like, I don't want to be here, and you suck. You know? And so <laughs> it was like I was working with that, whereas once I, you know, became a yoga teacher, everyone I work with is a volunteer. And to me... Over the years, um, the way that we create an inclusive class is we we learn to like you know first of all you know there's going to be a lot of uh, you know work that you do around um, with the use of sequencing, cueing, and timing to make your class both accessible but engaging enough to keep your attention. Like I just had a huge success story along these lines. My 13-year-old daughter and my 17-year-old niece decided to come to my Sunday morning class. I was teaching in Jacksonville, and I, so I had, like, worked the whole weekend around um, Sunday morning. So the Sunday morning was a kind of a, a meta class. So we mm-hmm. did kind of mindfulness the first two days, and we finished with loving kindness. And so this is, like, the, the, you know, the culmination of, you know, I think it was 16 hours of work that I was doing with a bunch of people, and these two teenagers are like, hey, we're going to pop in and do your last three hours. And I just, you know, been, you know, a parent long enough that, like, when kids like that say they're going to do something, you've got to back their play. And so I said, sure. Yeah. Um, but it's like they were there for the talk. They were there for the meta meditation. And they took an hour and 45-minute vinyasa class, and they didn't blink. And they said afterwards it felt like it just flew by. And to me, that reaching those two kids is as challenging as reaching anyone. And it's all really about, um, you know, how you're speaking to people, you know, pace, pace, rhythm, posture selection, but also this ability to make other, make the individual 
responsible for their participation without it being like, you know, drill sergeanty, but really like like two adults speaking to each other. And this is to me where I'm at with my teaching in terms of like how do you reach people? It's like, well, first of all, the person is responsible for their outcome. Like I'm not responsible for their outcome. I'm responsible for communicating, hey, this is how you can access this experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm responsible for the invitation. They're responsible for everything else. And there's a way that when the boundaries are clear enough, you get fantastic participation. I kept looking over at these two kids, and they were like, they looked like they were, like I taught, you know, in New York City for a while. And they looked like two NYU students. My daughter's in eighth grade, you know. <laughs> and the... um and uh, and my 17-year-old niece, this is her first year of class of her life. She had zero context. She had nothing to, like, compare to. She plays volleyball. Um, and there's a way that, to me, that was a benchmark in terms of how my class, how I've learned to make my class accessible, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I would say most of it was is trust. It's like, I'm going to say these things. And then you're going to work, you're going to find your way, mm. you know? And, 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 and to me, you know, this conversation about kind of a trauma-sensitive class, you know, there's, I think some of the best work um, that's been done along those lines are done by people that I, 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 I oddly knew well. It's, a lot of it came out of Boston, and it's places that um, uh, it's uh, people that I, you know, um, I've worked with, you know, and went to school with and, these people are doing good, good to great work. Mm. Um, and as someone who was traumatized, I, I did all my my work in ordinary drop-in classes. And I think it's important to recognize that, you know, someone with a history of trauma can walk into a regular class and just be like a regular person. Because I think what yoga classes are um, doing is they're handling the trauma of America. Yeah. Like everyone walking in there. Like some people are like, hey, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I have PTSD. I went to Iraq, and some people just grew up in a really difficult family, or they grew up like, how many oppressed populations do we have in this country? Now, how many Americans are, you know, they grew up in Cambodia, you know, they grew up in Somalia, they grew up, you know, I, I knew a woman who grew up in Bosnia during the war. Mm. It's like, how many of the people walking? You go to New York City or in LA or Chicago, and how many of these immigrant populations, you know? people from series like how many people have kind of like classical traumatic backgrounds but then how many have the traumas of you know of, of just of ordinary living and so as a yoga teacher the invitation that we make you know has to be highly informed you know and has to be you know has to take into account that you know if it's not trauma it's just different yeah. so i'm this guy who believes in himself like i'm a jock and i I'm very confident. I'm going to walk in. I'm going to be able to do this thing. But I'm speaking to someone else whose relationship to their body is very conflicted yeah. and very troubled, and they've had actual illness and injury. And I have to be able to cross that divide, you know? And so that's going to be true, you know, to, and that's the beauty to me. I mean, a yoga teacher is that over time, you slowly whittle down the walls between you and all the people who walk in, Yeah, you know? So, so I see it more of as an inclusive challenge. You know, I think it's, I'm as challenged working with, you know, someone who's been on the street with an addiction and trauma as I am with someone who just has chronic pain. It's yeah. the same, to me, it's the same challenge. 
Yeah, and saying that, I'm curious to what your opinion or what your thoughts are on what is happening with the popularization of yoga as we know it now, because I was trained in, in the way that I was introduced to yoga was definitely more uh, of the uh, mind, spirit, uh, body connection, as opposed to um, it being an exercise form. And I know that a lot of people have been introduced to yoga as a form of exercise. But I think that to your point, as a yoga teacher, the the intention would be to to provide a space for a student to practice, to have their practice, and to feel safe and to feel that inclusiveness that you're you're speaking to very articulately. What do you think is? Do you think that that's missing in in yoga as we know it today? From since you've been studying or practicing in the last over the last 20 years? I don't know. I can't, you know, that's a, you know, yeah, I would say that the general tone of the classes I was taking in the 90s um, was, uh, you know, had a a stiller, more devotional quality to them. Mm -hmm. And there was, um, you know, there was no space between the teachers and the concept of spiritual practice. Like Mm -hmm. the teachers I had back then, we're offering a spiritual practice. And when yoga became popular, it became, you know, it was kind of popularized in some ways as a workout. You yeah. Know? Um, and, the, and so there was like, hey, we can get, we can go from 1 million people to 25 million people in 10 years by offering this as kind of a very profound and effective workout. Um, and I would say that there's an almost almost perfect requirement if you want to continue to um if you want to prosper as a yoga teacher um there's going to be a refinement Mm -hmm. that you will make over time now the only caveat here is that you know there'll be a refinement that you make over time and how you teach if you are continuing on your own personal growth Mm. So assuming that, you know, I think, you know, if a yoga teacher gets trained in a very kind of athletic form of yoga and they start teaching athletic form of yoga and they continue to grow, that growth will begin to inform how they're teaching the class. Mm-hmm. And so I trust that process. I trust that someone can, can get kind of a, a basic form that they learn. But then there, there's a purity of the heart's intention that I think everyone possesses. You know, um, I think that like extreme, you know, you know, health is when we're listening to the heart. And I think that mental, you know, like extreme, you know, disease is when we are unable to listen to the heart, but that heart is there. And so these people who are trained, like, let's say you're trained in a a very athletic form, your, your heart is still, you know, touched by the people who walk through the room. Yeah. And so you're going to want to serve them. And just for me, this has been the mechanism. The mere desire to be of service moves you forward in your own practice. You're aware of, you know, for instance, I wanted to facilitate a deep shavasana. I wanted to facilitate, like, deep introspective moments, you know, both towards the end of class during the finishing postures, but also 
you know, I feel like there's all these moments for reflection within the class, you know, in the more yang portions of the class. And I knew that when you're facilitating those moments, you have to drop into stillness, mm-hmm. you know. And so my desire to, like, make my class a more profound experience called me forward in my own practice. And I just trusted that, that I'm ordinary, and that's happening for most teachers. And so, you know, I think there's a concern that yoga has, you know, lost its way a little bit by becoming popular and that there's people teaching kind of, you know, almost CrossFit yoga classes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I don't share that concern. You know, yeah, if I walked into a class and you asked me, hey, this, what do you think? And I'd be like, well, I, I don't think it's super yogi, you know. Um, <laughs> but do I think that woman or that man in five years is going to be teaching a more, you know, a class that has more depth? I'm like, yeah, I think in, this is part of her process, and it's part of the student's process. And mm-hmm. so I have faith, you know. Uh, I, I really do. I, and I, and wherever I go, you know, I'll tell you that wherever I go, I'm seeing the um, the place that students can go deepen. And I go everywhere, you know. I, I've been, I can't, you know, I've just been everywhere in the last, like, you know, just in the last six months, I've probably been to, you know, 12 states, you know, 12. And, and everywhere I go, people have, you know, may play, you know, probably 80% of the students I meet have never worked with me before. We don't have any, like, mutual background. Yeah. But when I, but by the time we get into, you know, the, I do meditation before Shavasana, you know, and so we do, we go from the movement and the finishing poses to meditation and from meditation to Shavasana, and those meditations, you can hear a pin drop, you know, in the meditations, the Shavasanas are very, very deep, you know, and the participation is, like, wholehearted, and that's going to be true in Iowa, it's going to be true in, you know, Long Island, it's going to be true in Jacksonville, it's going to be true in, and I'll be in Ventura later on this week, it's going to be true anywhere I go. And to me, that, that speaks to how yoga in America is doing. Mm. Yeah, that's really great. I really, I love that. You talk about the importance of balance and flow a lot. Um, how do we begin to recognize that process uh, pertaining to our yoga practice, one, or just pertaining to our life? I didn't, you said, did you say balance and flow? Yeah, like the just the importance of finding balance of of balance, learning when to balance and learning when to flow. I mean, I I would take that as you know knowing when to uh, find that that stillness within whatever it is that we're doing, or to be able to just, I guess, surrender would be the word. Right, and I think that one of the challenges we face as humans is. We have we, we we get like the big picture, right? Mm-hmm. So we're sitting here trying to do you know the now, but we're aware of where the now is supposed to be leading. We know the plan, you know. Okay, I'm a freshman, but I you know I need to like graduate by a certain time. I need to get certain papers done. I need to like go on certain internships. It means I need to like do this and do that. And so we're challenged, you know, to let go of the future and let go of the past and and be fully present for what you're doing. And this, to me, is one of the, the gifts of having been a yoga teacher for a long time, is that, you know, I've had to look at, like, well, how do you be effective at anything? Mm-hmm. And the way you're effective at anything is, is you learn to, to be in the moment. 
And so the first aspect of answering that question to you is that I answer that question for myself by, by bringing my attention into the present moment mm-hmm. and feeling, you know, moving from thinking to feeling into, is it a time to listen? Is it a time to talk? Is this a time to be still? Is it a time to act? Is it a time to reflect and feel? Like, we're going to know, you know, what time it is, is it by being present. And so that that's the habit that we have to fall into. And yoga teaching has been a beautiful vehicle for me because for, for just being content to work with just this moment mm. and not leading into the next one and not really being in the moment I'm in relative to the last one. It's like my students and I are in this moment. You know, what's the choice to, do we go left or do we go right now? You know, and living in this moment. So, like, I don't make mixes. I DJ my classes because, you know, what I found is that if you mix, if you if you do a mix, the mix is a good concept. But the reality is the classes manifest differently every time. And there's going to be a mood and a tone and a rhythm for what unfolds. And you don't really know what's going to unfold in five minutes. And so I DJ my classes or I do silence. But I don't do mixes because then you're introducing a tempo into a, into a moment that this is a tempo that you thought of five months ago or five minutes ago. It's not a tempo for the moment, mm. you know. And so, you know, this may, not, this may sound like a trite response, but I'm actually living into the question you're posing is a question that I have 24-7. You know, <laughs> like, what is, what is the nature of the moment that I'm in? Because yeah. that's going to determine the appro- what, what an appropriate response is. And so the first step is just really to be content to feel into a, the moment and be, and, and, you know, and this is why having, a, you know, I really think that you want to have a practice, but you also want to have a path of service mm. where you're taking your practice off the mat, off the cushion, and into another kind of stylized moment, whether you're a therapist or you're a, you know, a teacher, think about like a public school teacher. Mm-hmm. It's like a six or eight hour meditation to be in. You know, you're in that moment, you're you're with your students, you're trying to teach your math, or you're teaching your pranayama. This is the same inquiry as what you're doing on your mat and your cushion. And if you have a practice and a path of service, the years are going to go by and both of them are going to be pushing you more and more into the moment. The way to be effective, you know, as a healer or a teacher is to be in the moment, the way to, and what your practice is teaching is to be in the moment. And the moment really does come down to this, there's a, the phrase in Buddhism is wise effort. You know, you're balancing effort and ease. You're finding the middle, you know. And there's, and so and as I'm cueing people in class, it's always this, find your way to the middle, you know. And you're always finding your way to the whether you're in Warrior two or you're, you know, in your, um, you know, uh, you're in your classroom teaching, it's like you're finding your way to the middle, you're finding your way to the moment, you're finding your way to the answer to your question. And the answer to your question is, lives always in the now, the felt experience of the now. And so this is how we, and yeah, when you start, it's like a kind of a big intellectual construct. Like, well, how do we know when to hold them, know when to fold them, you know? Yeah. And, and, and the reality is you're not, there's no like, there is no answer like in, in the cloud, you know, there's only, <laughs> only an answer to that question in the moment. And you just, and there is no other solution. 
Right. How do I find, well, you're not going to find balance in tomorrow. You're not going to find balance in yesterday. You're going to find balance in how your feet meet the earth, you know, and being right there as your feet meet the earth. Yeah. I think that so much of our suffering or a negative state can be attributed to the idea of, of time and how we are linear beings, right? So we think of everything has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it takes us out of experience a moment at its wholeness. So another thing, another thing that I... I really like that you say is how yoga is not a workout, it's a work in. And I think that that pertains to what you just spoke to in in our ability to provide an experience or or hold space for our students or for as student for us as students to uh, generate the wholeness of of uh, a moment. So how how does that begin to work for a beginner? Let's say how how do they begin to go through this process of of being in the moment? You know, if they don't or have never experienced being present because they've you know either had a, a stressful job or, or or trauma or have have had something uh, really awful just happen to them when they're really in their mind or in their in their thought or in their state of suffering, what are some things that, that you could tell a student to begin to alleviate that or give them some tools to break from that, uh, that wheel? Well, I think that, um, you know, there's a phrase, you know, learning to have sober feet, you know, before you have like a sober brain, you're going to have like sober feet. And so I think that for someone seeking, you know, kind of inner stillness and peace and kind of groundedness, you know, just having the, you know, create, having sober feet, meaning you develop the habit of going to class, you know, and you go to class, you know, and you use class as kind of an intervention for yourself. It's like you have your, you get, you get worked up through your day and you go to an even yoga class as often as you can. Mm-hmm. And you'll find that, you know, if you have sober feet, you'll get results. Like you'll, you go to class a lot. You may not understand, you know, what the teacher's saying about the metaphysical piece. And you may do the poses very aggressively, you know, or half-heartedly, depending on your kind of habit. Um, and so you may not be the most skillful person, but you'll find that the average yoga class, I think, provides a lot of um, um, of stress reduction. Mm-hmm. Like if you if you're... If you're can see you have sober feet and you're going to class regularly, you're gonna find that that's working for you. Yeah. And and to me, as a teacher, I see, I look at it from both directions. One is I take a very long view. It's like, yeah, it may take you three to five years of going to class without really, you know, understanding how to participate and what an appropriate goal is for your practice, but it'll come over time. And so for me, I love the patience of the process. The, the teacher needs to have that patience and just be like mm. content. Like, yeah, I, I would like for this person to have 10 years of yoga in a year, but it's not going to happen. Um, and so, you know, and every year is going to have a great value for the student. And so just kind of be in the joy of the learning process. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of the continuum, what, I'm, what I find 
So now I'm holding space for these people and I'm comfortable with them taking 10, 20 years to get to where they need to go. Um, but at the same time, I'm going to teach, in my, I'm going to include in my class the, the invitation to deep states of concentration, mm-hmm. you know, deep states of meditation, deep states of samadhi. I'm not going to assume that because someone is new to yoga, they're not wired for present moment awareness. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to include some of the more advanced cues that my teachers have ever given me. Like one of the, probably the most profound cue I've ever heard was look direct at the nature of awareness, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to bring that for, I, I would bring that into a beginner's class, you know, if it felt like we were still enough and I supported people, you know, with, you know, I prepared people to take that step in their practice. And so on the one hand, I think we have to be really patient and let people kind of, you know, stumble forward and, you know, they're going to like get the, the Lululemon and they're going to get the, you know, the hot sweaty poses and they're going to get the, you know, <laughs> a coconut water and they're going to, you know, and they're going to do all the forms. They'll have like a vegan phase or whatever. And right. they'll, they'll, be a, they'll be a part of some like yoga drama at some point. And <laughs> it, it's like, it's like be patient with that. But because it's all leading in the right direction. Right. Um, but, you know, and like be grateful. Like, I'm also like, don't be a judge. Like, I went, right. I only know about this because I've done it all. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, yeah, I literally like starved my, I, I, I weigh 215. I'm, I think I'm a healthy 215. And I, I had a phase where I was down to 155 because I was such a, adamant kind of the way I was eating was so unhealthy I was so like caught up and you know kind of like the Buddha was like an aesthetic for a while Uh I was so caught up in in controlling my food and eating the right way that I nearly starved myself and Mm. so it's like people you you kind of go they say the great way is easier but people prefer the side path it's like we're going to have our side path but we're going to get there you know Um, and you know we have that patience but at the same time um, I'll you know, I'm kind of, I feel like people, a person on their first day of yoga can feel, you know, some of the deeper teachings. Mm. You know, if we, you know, and this is all, once again, it's like trust. Yeah. Like I trust that their process can take 10 years and it's fine. I also trust that they can hear a deep teaching, you know, in the right moment. Mm-hmm. You know, they mm-hmm. can hear a deep teaching. I also think that um, if they have to hear it a hundred times, to understand it every time matters. Yeah. What do you think as yoga teachers or what do you wish as yoga teachers we had more of? I would I would like us I would like us to have an hour within the structure of any setting. You know? oh. So at the beginning of a public school day we had an hour, you know, we could work with the students. The beginning of a day of corporate well you know, there's like there's corporate wellness and people just came and from seven to eight Instead of like, you know, walking into their offices and their cubicles and their, their hierarchies, they all just practice together for an hour, mm-hmm. you know. You know, in terms of like what we had more of is more kind of relevant to the workplace, the, the classroom, you know, more. I would like us to, I can see no downside to there being an hour of yoga and meditation, you know, wherever you went. Like it's just the traditional like so we have a school so it starts with yoga so we have a business so it starts with yoga so we're a cop or a fireman and we, we show up an hour early and you practice with the people on your shift 
Like everyone practices together before they go do whatever they're doing. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'd like to, you know, certainly in prisons, you know. Yeah. I, you know, start the day with, you know, in prison, give them, give them two hours, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, if the, I would like there to be a relevance um, outside. It's been wonderful that I work with volunteers, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a huge line that you cross when you start working with a population that's not a volunteer where things are, like, mandated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, you know, the, that would have to be worked out. Um, but, yeah, providing that hour uh, for the general public um, mm-hmm. and giving them that grounded and that, that grounding in that direction would be, yeah, if, I had, if we had more, that's what I'd want more of. Mm. Well, I want to be able to respect your time. So I've only got a couple more questions. So I'll, I'll try to make them as concise as possible. I, I'll tell you right now, I've not even, I've not even gotten to the first third of questions that I wanted to ask you, <laughs> which just means we're going to have to do this again. Uh, hopefully. Yeah, we'll do another podcast. What are some words of wisdom that you live by? The four noble truths, the first three noble truths, are what I'm up to these days, you know, it's being aware that pre- suffering is, when suffering is present, mm-hmm. um, being aware, that's the first noble truth to me, and being aware that, that I'm, you know, that I am the author of my suffering is the second noble truth that I'm clinging. You know, so suffering is present, and suffering is present, and I'm persisting in holding mm-hmm. on to my suffering. Second noble truth. And the third noble truth is um, the truth of, you know, letting go, mm. that we can let go. And, like, looking at all three, you know, that that human beings, there's pain and there's suffering. Pain is a nail on the foot. Suffering mm. is a parking ticket. It's like we can just be upset about the way things are. And that's, like, something to look directly at in my life is that, you know, I can pass judgment and create suffering. The second thing is I can pass judgment, I can create suffering, and I can hold on to it. You know, I can persist. You know, I can know this is wrong, this should never be. And then the third noble truth is just that I can let go. Yeah, maybe my whole life I've, I've held on. I've, I've responded negatively to this type of situation, and I've felt, you know, that this is, I felt powerless over being able to change my reactivity. Um, but the third noble truth is like, no, you can let go. You know, it's out there. And this is to me what um, long-term meditation practice pushes you into is the felt sense of being able to let go. You know, you can let go of everything, you know, and still be there yeah. and still be safe and still be awake and still be heartfelt. Like, it's like letting go isn't like, unplugging your heart from a situation mm-hmm. letting go go so that's what so those three you know the eighth the fourth level two is just the path and i live the eightfold way um but what i where my focus is these days is on the felt reality of the first three noble truths mm, that's beautiful i love that what area of your life do you feel the most free Um, nowadays, I mean, it changes, um, you know, um, nowadays I would say it teaching, Mm. um, 
you know, uh, uh, I, you know, being in the teaching space, the combination of, um, you know, being able to contribute to something I love um, and the requirement, you know, you can't give any, you can't give something away and hold on to it at the same time. And so to give something away is to let go. And so the combination of both giving and letting go that is teaching um, is right now my, it's, like, it's my best place, mm. you know. Oh, I love that. Uh, so the final question I will ask uh, pertains to uh, this forum. And so Radically Loved is this idea or the belief that there is a higher power, a greater power that is constantly supporting us, that we are completely supported and loved by our universe, uh, environment, source, God, a uh, God of your understanding, whatever it is, we are radically loved and completely supported. So for you, number one, how do you feel radically loved? And number two, what do you radically love? Okay, well, you know, like I, I, I haven't mentioned this, but, you know, I got sober through the power of prayer. You know, mm-hmm. I, I read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it suggested, it, through reading the book, I was able to understand the nature of my addiction. I didn't know I was an addict, and I read the book, and I'm like, oh, I'm an addict. And, um, and they said pray, and I prayed, and the desire was lifted. So May 21st, 1990, I prayed, and the desire to drink was lifted, and I've never gotten it back. You know, I... I've had a program of recovery from addiction and et cetera, but I've never struggled not one day of my sobriety with the desire to drink. The desire was like literally lifted and I was like stone cold dying of an addiction and it was lifted. And so, um, that experience left a lasting impression. And so it's, it's almost impossible for me to answer that question because it was like a fundamental shift when I got sober and part of that shift, I'm a cellular shift is the awareness of, you know, the presence of, for lack of a better word, God in my life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's like a living reality to me is that essentially every day since that moment, I'm kind of living in the, pre- the present moment awareness of the grace of my higher power. And that really that my life is about making an effort to kind of like fit myself into God's plan. <laughs> like God's plan is there. And it's love, and it's all, it's, 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 it's perfect. I just need to find a way to align with that. And, you know, God, it, there's like, there's a purity of our heart's intention, and there's the purity of the great heart's intention. And that's, that, that purity is always there. That intention is always there. You know, it's kind of like kindness is like, you know, what would be alignment with God's will? It's like, well, kindness, um, generosity, you know, like faith, um, uh, that would be, those are three words that come to mind. And so um, for me, it's never been a question. There's, you know, I went from being lost to being found, basically. There's never been a question about, you know, the fact that I'm radically loved. It's like that's, you know, that radical love has taken away the desire to drink. I've, my life has been like a series of miracles since then, and it is today, you know. Um, now, what I, you know, and, and so what I radically love is where human beings have gathered to kind of 
you know, it's almost like, it's like there's a song that we learned in another dimension, <laughs> which is, you know, and we come into this dimension and we forget that song. And that song is the truth of who we are. And that song is the way for us to be who we are. And then groups of people come together to remember that song, you know, and that's what we hear. You know, I think, um, there's like all these tears in the room when Meryl Streep was talking. And I think because she was talking about that song, you know, it's like what that art is and what, you know, what what's happening, um, you know, with art, what's happening when we're touched, you know, when there's tears that come to our eyes, is we're hearing the song. The song is in all the beauty, it's in all the poetry, it's in all the music. The song is everywhere. And what I radically love is where people are like, no, 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 wait, I want to hear the song, mm. you know. And I'm going to go where that song is happening, and I'm not going to prioritize other things. I don't need other things. I need to hear the song. I love that. That's so great. That's really awesome. Thank you for sharing that. That's that's one of my favorite answers to date. Uh, Rolf Gates, thank you so much for being a guest on the show and for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom and your heart and your teachings to the world and everything that you do. You're such a light in the world and I aspire to one day be that bright. So thank you. Thank you for that. Well, thank you, Rosie, for having me. Have a, uh, have a wonderful new year. Uh, yeah, let's do this again. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit www.radicallylove.com forward slash podcast. To read all about today's guests or past guests, you can click on any of the links or for more information, you can always follow me on Instagram at Rosie Acosta or Twitter at Rosie Acosta and let us know what you thought.